Welcome to you, wherever you are at, whomever you are with. We are so very glad that you are here with us on this very special Easter weekend. You know, there's a traditional saying that uh, I'm going to miss uh, being able to share it with a lot of uh, people, familiar faces, but because I'm here and you are there, let's uh, try this. The traditional greeting for Easter weekend is this. I say, he is risen, and you say in response, he is risen indeed. You ready? Let's give that a try. He is risen. I can feel your vibe, but it's not quite up to par. So let's try that one more time. And if you're with someone, kind of blow them out of the room with your response. Uh, here we go. He is risen. That sounds much better, I am sure. Well, uh, you know, that is a wonderful greeting of assurance. Uh, it's an affirmation of a fact. But uh, sometimes I wonder, can we really be that certain? that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the grave, that someone who was dead three days came back to life by the power of God. Uh, you know, we saw uh, in the video uh, presentation a little bit earlier that it's easy to have doubts about God, and, and how can we know for sure that this way is better than that way amongst all the different uh, religions in the world? Uh, the Apostle Paul addresses this uh, conundrum of, of living uh, without doubt uh, in our faith and in our pursuit of God. And he refers to it as the riches of complete understanding. In fact, he says it like this, my goal in, in his work with these believers is that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. And if you, you read that in the context of his letter, is he saying, when you come to understand what God really accomplished in the word becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, in his being raised from the dead and exalted back to heaven, if we really get that, it opens up to us the riches of heaven become ours to live in both now and forever. Uh, we become wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations. We become filled with the knowledge of God's will for people and for our lives. Uh, John, the beloved uh, disciple he came to be known as, uh, we saw uh, some words earlier uh, in yet that same video where uh, John had this incredible vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this came at a time when John was uh, struggling. He was going through a very dark time in his life, and uh, he had been uh, arrested for being one of the propagators of this faith and a miracle worker named Jesus, who his followers were claiming had been raised from the dead. And John gets arrested and sent into exile uh, to the island of Patmos. And uh, think, uh, think uh, Alcatraz and not Tahiti. And so uh, John is on this barren rock of, a, of an island, uh, really a prisoner because of his faith. And he sees the risen Lord Jesus, and then he writes these words. Uh, then he, this amazing uh, risen Christ, placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. And so John 
was reassured by this uh, vision and the, the literal touch of the risen Jesus. But again, I ask that question, can normal people like you and I come to that same sort of assurance, the riches of complete understanding so that we live enriched and wealthy lives because of our access to God and to all that he is. Um, you know, I think that uh, most of us, a lot of people anyway, uh, think that matters of religion and spirituality will never be certain. They'll always be left open to interpretation and philosophies and uh, different viewpoints. And I, I get part of that, uh, but part of that uh, leaves us in a place of uncertainty that is not healthy uh, for us in our response to God. Uh, one man who was an avowed atheist, his name was Lee Strobel, and uh, he wrote a book called The Case for Easter. And uh, Lee, by profession, it was a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, by, by his very nature, he questioned facts. And uh, when his wife became a follower of Christ, well, he sought to disprove uh, the reality of the... Re well, I'll let you uh, hear some of his own story. Uh, this is just an excerpt from uh, some of Lee's story of how he investigated the facts, so-called facts of Christ's resurrection. Have a listen it comes down to where does the evidence point? And if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and backed it up by returning from the dead, then that's good evidence that he is who he claimed to be, and therefore his words are God's words. So I look at, did Jesus return from the dead? And I look at the four E's as uh, to sort of summarize the evidence. The first E is for execution. Virtually every scholar, uh, believer, non-believer, skeptic, uh, concedes that Jesus was executed in uh, the first century, 30 or 33 AD. Uh, secondly, you have early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus. We have historical data that goes within, it goes back to within months of Jesus' life. I mean, that is historical gold. The question of history has never been, was the tomb empty? Everybody admitted that. The question was, is, uh, uh, or how did the tomb get empty? That's really the issue that Jesus appeared alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 individuals, to skeptics and doubters, as well as to believers, indoors and outdoors, to groups, to individuals. People talked with them, they touched them, they ate with them. I mean, think about that. That's 515 eyewitnesses. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. One of my jobs was to travel the country and cover major trials. I never saw a trial with 515 eyewitnesses. That's a pretty large amount of persuasive evidence. So I put these four E's together, the execution, the early accounts, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses. To me, that is a powerful case for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and thus authenticated his claim that he is the Son of God. Well, John the Beloved actually wrote a, a, a testament of uh, the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of John. And uh, in John's Gospel, uh, he treats Easter Day, that very first day when Christ rose from the dead, he treats it in a very unique way. And uh, John presents to us uh, three appearances of the risen Lord Jesus. And each one of them is to uh, a person or persons 
who have doubts, who, who are skeptical about whether or not this Jesus whom they had put their hope in and followed after they'd seen him arrested and tortured and beaten and put to death on a cross and his dead body pierced with a spear and hauled away to a tomb. Each of them had their doubts. You would say they, they certainly weren't living in the riches of complete understanding. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's interesting to think about that first day when Jesus was alive again from the dead. I mean, did he have a schedule planned out? That uh, Sometime during the night, uh, before the early hours of the morning, uh, Jesus was infused with resurrection life. In fact, uh, we're told that God raised him from the dead by this incredible exertion of his strength and his power. And uh, sometime in the night, uh, he exited the tomb. And uh, on the way out of the tomb, he stopped and said, whoops, got to fold the burial clothes. And uh, so he goes back and he folds uh, the clothes and leaves them lying there. And it's, it's important to note that just a few chapters earlier in John's gospel, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he came out of the tomb with his grave clothes on. Uh, Jesus came out of the tomb having no need of grave clothes any longer. And you can make some of the inferences there. But uh, what did he do uh, in those wee hours of the morning? Well, Peter, one of his followers, says that in some strange way, Jesus went and preached to the imprisoned spirits. But uh, we know that he came back to the tomb uh, to witness Mary's arrival. And uh, we're told that Mary arrived at the tomb while it was uh, still dark. And um, she actually, uh, when she sees the stone rolled away, she has quite another assumption than that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, uh, if you read the account, it says uh, when she saw the stone rolled away, uh, removed from the entrance, she went running back to Simon Peter and the other disciples. And here's what she said. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So Mary's assumption is what most of us would assume if someone has been dead and buried and now their body is gone. We would not assume that they've been raised, even though Jesus said that would be the case. Uh, Mary assumes that his body has been taken. Well, Peter and John run to the tomb. We're told that uh, John outran Peter, not to be surprised, but we're also told that when Peter arrived, uh, he went straight into the tomb ahead of John, not to be surprised by Peter's uh, impulsiveness. But um, when they saw the strips of linen lying there folded, uh, the scriptures say that John looked at those linens and he believed. Uh, but even that comment, he believed, it's he believed sort of. Because the very next verse in verse 9 says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so the disciples then went back to where the rest of them were staying. Uh, Easter morning is shaping up rather strangely uh, to this point. There's a lot of running around and uh, running back and forth, Mary to the tomb, Mary back to the disciples, the disciples to the tomb, the disciples back home. Uh, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lack of clarity. 
and a lack of certainty surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, here's the truth. As John recounts this first day of Easter reality, Jesus doesn't leave these people in the poverty of uncertainty. You see, if there's riches of complete understanding, there's a poverty that accompanies uncertainty about exactly who Jesus is and what he did and what the resurrection means for us. He didn't leave these people in their uncertainty, and he doesn't want to leave you there either. And so he comes to Mary personally, and he guides her through her grief, and uh, she still misunderstands. Uh, She's still weeping at the tomb, and uh, these angels uh, accompany Jesus, and they ask her, woman, why are you crying? And again, her response is, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put them. Well, at this point, Jesus himself uh, approaches Mary. He calls out her name, and uh, in the calling of her name, uh, Mary cries out, teacher, and she embraces him. And you might say that Mary had come to a place of rich and full understanding. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't stop there. He then uh, approaches the disciples, and we're told that this is uh, later in the evening. Uh, Jesus appears to the disciples and begins in verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, uh, Jesus reached them even though they were blockaded in this locked room. And he knew that they were in that same place of the poverty, of uncertainty. And uh, he moved them past it. He said, look, see my wounds. See that it really is me. And uh, they were overjoyed when they saw him. The account goes on in verse 21. Again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. How dramatically the disciples' reality has changed. They're now overjoyed. They're now commissioned uh, to go out and be world changers uh, as a group. Their lives had dramatically been impacted. Well, uh, as the story goes on, not all of them. In fact, we are told that one of the 12 was actually missing. Uh, And this really brings us to the, the threshold of the third resurrection appearance. We're told uh, in verse 24, now Thomas, uh, also known as Didymus, you can imagine having a name like Didymus, why he would want to be called Thomas, but he was also one of the 12. But look at this, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Talk about missing out. Uh, Has there ever been a, a situation in your life where you weren't where you should have been, where you missed out on something marvelous 
that took place. Well, if you can think of one, you can begin to identify with Thomas. Imagine uh, Thomas was one of Jesus' hand-picked chosen followers. And uh, here Jesus comes back from the dead, uh, breaking through their barriers, revealing himself alive, breathing on them the very spirit of God, empowering them, commissioning them, sending them out to their chosen, prepared task. And Thomas missed it. Uh, I can't believe that that actually took place. You know, many of you know me, uh, are familiar with the story when my mother-in-law was 75 years old, we took her on a cruise of the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, that cruise was all about spotting whales. And uh, one day we were cruising along uh, the Nepali coast of Kauai, and uh, the captain of the ship actually said, uh, be on the lookout, uh, some whales have been spotted in the area. Well, we lined the rails and uh, searched for what seemed like hours, didn't see anything. And uh, I, being the servant that I was, told the group I would go down below and book us a reservation at a restaurant. And uh, when I got back up, uh, lo and behold, uh, the group looked like they had, uh, you know, the cat that had eaten the bird. And uh, they wondered whether or not they should tell me what they saw. In fact, they saw scenes like this. And uh, I said, you saw whales, didn't you? And uh, I didn't even want to acknowledge it. I said, say it isn't so that uh, I missed out on what this trip was all about. Well, that's exactly the kind of feeling that Thomas must have had. And, and uh, when the disciples reported to him, that they had seen Jesus and what he had said to them, his reaction was, I simply will not believe it. In fact, he said, unless I put my fingers in his hands and touch the wounds and touch the wound in his side, I will not believe. And uh, so in this third Easter day experience, appearance, Jesus comes yet again. And we're told in verse 26, though the doors were locked again, uh, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas. So you get the feeling that uh, the first experience was for Mary Magdalene. The second experience was for the 12 with Thomas missing. And this third uh, appearance is specifically for Thomas himself. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Well, these three Easter day appearances have a common thread. And the common thread is this, that Jesus came to each one of them and he led them beyond their uncertainty into the riches of complete understanding. Hear that again. The common thread in these Easter, first Easter day experiences and appearance of, uh, appearances of Jesus is that he came to each person as they needed to experience him. And he led them beyond their uncertainty into the riches of a more complete understanding of him and he does that with each one of us as well he does that with you you know if jesus were an idea if jesus were a philosophy 
If Jesus were just a creed or a set of truths, uh, it would be up to believers to convince other believers or other non-believers that these things were indeed true. And I think so often that's the disposition of people who believe in the, the Christian religion. But here's the truth. Jesus is not an ideology. Jesus is not a creed. Jesus is not a philosophy. Jesus is a living reality. You could say it like this. Jesus is living reality. And how you and I respond to him when he comes to us determines our eternal destiny. Jesus is as real as the air that we breathe. And what we know from these uh, Easter appearances is that he comes to those who seek him to lead them to a place of certainty about who he is and what he did through his death and his resurrection and how we respond to him when he comes to us is so critically important. This is the message of Jesus, that he didn't come to judge the world, but that who he is creates a dividing line. And how we respond to him determines not only our lives in this world, but our eternal destinies as well. You know, there's a, a classic passage uh, of probably a few decades after the resurrection of Christ. And it's with uh, the Apostle Paul, who, if you follow Paul's story, he hated Christians. He thought that they were, uh, they were an affront to God. And uh, he, being a zealous uh, leader among the Jewish uh, faith, uh, he sought to stamp out this movement of Christ followers. In fact, he murdered Christians. He hunted them down. And it was on one of his uh, journeys to hunt out uh, Christians that the risen Jesus Christ appeared to Paul. And Paul had a revelation. He came from absolute uncertainty to a confidence that Jesus was indeed who he said he was because he had appeared to Paul. And so Paul finds himself in Athens. And as he's uh, walking through this amazing city, he, he was deeply troubled in his spirit by how many idols he saw, hundreds and hundreds of gods uh, depicted in these statues. And uh, we're told that the Athenians loved to talk about spirituality and philosophy and ideas about God. But what you find is they didn't like God presented as a concrete reality. In fact, they had one statue that was to the unknown God. And so Paul picks up on this and he sees their uncertainty and uh, he engages in a conversation with uh, these philosophers and these teachers of the time. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, we're told Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so, Paul concludes, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Can you, can you hear the heart of Paul? He wants to move them beyond their uncertainty to the certainty 
and the riches of a complete understanding of exactly who Jesus is. And so uh, Paul begins uh, describing the big picture. He says, look, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't need our temples to live in. And he's not represented by our idols. Uh, so Paul right away is saying, we are talking about a concrete reality here. The God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And he says, uh, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's saying that this unseen God who is the creator of everything is also intimately involved in human history and movements. In verse 27, uh, Paul says this, God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And I believe that this weekend, someone needs to hear that said, God is not far from any one of us and his desire is to make himself known. And that's where Paul goes now in verse 30. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance where uh, men would depict him as living in a certain temple or embodied in a certain idol. Uh, before Jesus came, uh, God just kind of dealt with people where they were at. God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I know many hear that word repent, and it just seems like a harsh, heavy, religious word. It's not. Repent just means change your mind about God. Uh, let God give you a new uh, awareness of who he is. Uh, for God has set a day, Paul says, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What's Paul saying? Uh, Jesus is the great truth about God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when God raised him from the dead, he proved that he is all that he said he was. And his truth is accurate and sure. And uh, God will appoint, has appointed him that one day our response to Jesus would measure our openness to God. And we're told at the end of this speech, uh, some of those listening sneered at Paul. They literally mocked him because he was taking ideas and philosophies about God and putting them into a concrete person who he says rose from the dead. Well, uh, what is a great response? to the reality of Jesus Christ? What is the best response? What is the kind of response to the living reality that Jesus is that brings us into a, a rich experience of the real God, the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth? Well, to answer that question and to end this Easter message, I want to go back to Thomas because as Jesus uh, appeared for Thomas, to, to bring, bring about what Thomas missed and to lead him from his unbelief into a place of certainty. We're told again in verse 27 of John's uh, gospel, uh, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, 
put it in my side, stop doubting, and believe. And look at Thomas's response. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And if you, if you realize what Thomas is saying here, uh, commentators say this is the, the highest proclamation that could ever be made about Jesus Christ. And it's also the most accurate that Jesus is not only Lord, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, God in the flesh. Uh, he's not only my Lord, Thomas says, he's my God. Uh, see, Thomas, uh, when, he, when he realized Jesus was indeed alive after being put to death, he realized that he was not only his Lord and Savior, but he was the unseen God made known to us. And Jesus then ends by saying, because you've seen me, you've believed, but how blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And see, Jesus is inviting all of us who are not a part of that first Easter day uh, to open up to the same revelation of himself, that he is a living reality and he alone can make God known to us and give us that rich experience of God that we've been talking about as we uh, end this message. I, I want to share with you uh, my story of going from uncertainty to a certain uh, awareness of who Jesus is and why he came and what he could do in my life. Uh, I grew up in a home with no faith. And uh, at the age of 20, some followers of Christ began to reach out to me to influence me in a very positive way. And I remember a season of life where I was literally living with one foot uh, into faith, you know, moving towards Christianity, moving towards what felt like it could be true, but I wasn't sure. And I had one foot in that direction and one foot firmly entrenched in my crazy party lifestyle and uh, just pursuing pleasure in any way shape and form and, and just trying to hang out with my peers as much as I could and do all kinds of you know whatever we felt like doing together and I was being pulled in those two directions and on one fateful uh, ski trip if you know my story you've heard this story but uh uh, I had bought a new sports car, a used sports car, and driven over the mountains to go meet up with a bunch of friends and go skiing and party all night. And uh, when my one of my buddies got in my new car to go for a ride, uh, he noticed my Bible sitting on the seat. And uh, he literally sneered at it and uh, said, what's this? And I, I, my comment was, well, it's the Bible. I've been reading it lately, and it's pretty amazing. And he threw it behind the seat, and we drove around for a bit. But uh, on returning to that party that we'd been at that night, I was uh, sitting on the furnace. It was ice cold outside and room full of people doing what people do, getting crazy uh, at this party. And I can't say it any other way than that Jesus uh, showed up in my life. And uh, I literally felt him say this to me. Um, how would you feel if I came for you now and this is where you were and this is what you were doing? And uh, I was sobered in a second. 
And uh, the words that came out of my mouth, under my breath, were, Lord, I would be ashamed. And uh, I got up, collected my stuff, I left, and I never went back to that lifestyle. See, I went from uncertainty and doubts and and, uh, talking about religious ideas and, and evaluating this truth and that truth. I went from that place of double-mindedness to a place of absolute certainty that the living one had come for me and brought me into the riches of a complete understanding. And as I pray with you right now, I want to invite you. Uh, You know, it really comes down to this reality is admitting that uh, I need Jesus in my life. And I believe that as uh, many of you have heard this Easter message this weekend. That's exactly what you're feeling. You know uh, it's not uh, this pursuit or figuring that out. And maybe there is a place for evidence and uh, you know the uh, the experience of the early disciples and and all the truths that Lee Strobel expounded. But you know uh, the reality of the presence of Jesus when you experience it. And as I said earlier, our eternity is determined by our response to that. And I believe that many right now, you're, you're just saying, uh, I need Jesus. I need to open up to Jesus in my life. And I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Wherever you're at, whomever you are with, uh, if you're listening to this message and driving your car, hold on to one, uh, the steering wheel with one hand. But I'm going to ask you right now, if you want to open your life to Jesus, just raise your hand right where you're at. Just saying by the raising of your hand, uh, Jesus, I need to open up to you. I need you in my life, and I want that certainty. I want to live in the riches of what you came to do for me. And when you rose from the dead, what you made available to me. And I would just agree with you right now. If if you're making that decision, uh, here's some things you could do. If you're watching online on our uh, Church Online broadcast, Right now, you'll see a little hand there in the lower right-hand corner. Click on that, and that would be a way of you taking that step, that declaration of saying, Jesus is not just a historical figure. Uh, He's my Lord, and he's my God, and I'm convinced of it. And uh, let me say a prayer with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the love that you have for me. Your your word says you're the good shepherd of our souls. Uh, Thank you. Lord, that you would care about me enough to seek me out, to find me exactly where I need to find you. And I I welcome you now. I open my heart to you as best I can. And I thank you for what I've heard, that through your work on the cross, that I can be forgiven, that through your resurrection, I can be restored, and I can live a life that's full of meaning and purpose. And you would even commission me to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And I pray that in Jesus' strong and mighty name. And now I want to pray for all the rest of us hearing this Easter message. You know, uh, this may sound like a harsh reality, but I know it's true, is that a belief system that is absent of the living presence of Jesus, a Christianity that is absent of an active interaction with the living presence of Jesus is not only powerless, 
it's often offensive. And why is that? Because the life that Jesus came to give comes only as a result of seeing him as he is, my Lord and my God, and responding to him. And I want to pray for all of us who maybe maybe we've gotten distant from that. You know, I read a, a saw a set of films about revival in China when, when China was suffocating under the communist regime, as many still are, but they were completely stamping out organized religion. And yet, uh, underground, the church in China was flourishing. And as I watched interview after interview with these people who found new life in Christ, uh, their stories were all very similar. Their lives changed simply as they called out to Jesus. Uh, not through some complex uh, learning of, of uh, all the creeds and truths about New Testament Christianity, though that would come. Their lives changed miraculously when they called out to the living uh, one, Jesus Christ, and they, they shared with their friends, they shared with their family members, uh, just call out to Jesus, call upon him, uh, he will help you. And uh, time after time, you saw marriages healed, families restored, addictions broken, uh, liars and thieves changed their business ethics. Why? Because they called out to the living presence of Jesus, and he met them right where they were at. And Lord, I pray for all of us. Uh, now, wherever we're at in our journey with you, uh, Lord, maybe some of us are in exile this morning like John and we need a fresh revelation of your living presence Lord maybe there are some hearing this that are like Mary they're so overcome with grief and loss and things that have unfolded in their lives that their faith has grown dim and they find it hard to even see you in the midst of their difficulties and Lord maybe there are some like those disciples hidden behind closed doors for fear of people and Lord, maybe uh, there are some hearing this message that are so concerned about what people think that they've lost touch with what you think and how you would direct their lives. And uh, maybe, Lord, there are some are like Thomas this morning that have just been let down one too many times and they're simply refusing to be set up for another disappointment. Lord, wherever we are at, Thank you that we would take this weekend to recognize you come to people in your living presence. And Lord, I pray that right now you would breathe on people who believe in your name and that you would fill us with that heavenly life that can only come from you, that you would commission and empower us to live as your representatives in the world. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.